Good morning, Grace. Are you awake? That was pretty pathetic. Are you awake? There you go. Nice. Well, I am excited to be with you. Pastor John and Krista are an amazing ministry couple, aren't they? Let's give them a round of applause. I mean, Krista, because John's not here. More so Krista than John. You know, let's just, yeah, let's just love all over her. Yes, John is in the Holy Land, and I found out that he's already, he's working out over there, which is, he's found a gym, and he's working. He's, he stayed at our cabin one time, and he was down in the basement working out, and we have no workout stuff, but he was just flipping around on the carpet and stuff, and I said, this is just strange, Pastor. So uh, anyway, they love to work out. Well, I love them, and I love each of you. You are an important part of our family of churches called Converge Rocky Mountain, God's people converging together to accomplish God's purposes in the Rocky Mountain West. We are very much a missions organization, as Mike mentioned. We really exist to, to start brand new congregations and to strengthen our existing congregations so that we'll be more effective in reaching our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And God is at work. This past Easter, we had almost 30,000 people attending our 61 churches. Eight years ago, we broke the 10,000 mark. So in eight years, we've tripled in the size of the people that we're having an impact with. So very exciting. Almost 300 first-time decisions for Christ that day, 300 baptisms. So an amazing Easter Sunday for all of us in our movement. But beyond that, this last year, we've, we've seen hundreds more people baptized, finding new life in Christ. Every one of those baptisms is a story of transformation, someone who was lost, and now they're found. We also trained up ministry coaches. We've offered training events to our churches. We helped some churches find pastors. We've done conflict resolution. And we've also banded together to send outreach teams to countries, well, to Utah, and then to Mexico, Haiti, Uganda, Estonia, Argentina. Um, and we even sent a team to the island of Mindanao in the Philippines to reach 10 unreached tribes on that Muslim island. So our family of churches is also setting a goal to add 100 congregations by 2025. It is a huge God-sized goal, but it's so important because we live in a very unchurched part of the country. I mean, we really have a lot of work to do here for the kingdom. So uh, we want to want to um, really take that to heart and, and take it seriously. In fact, all summer long, I've been talking about the importance of us being missionaries right here in the Rocky Mountain West. You know, God calls us to support missionaries, but he also calls us to be missionaries wherever he has placed us. Isn't that true? Mm, that's okay. Now you're falling asleep again. No. Yes, he calls us to be missionaries as well. So to guide our thinking this morning, I want to go back to a historical biblical account found way back in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And uh, you can read both uh, past, uh, chapters later on this afternoon. But for now, let me just read 2 Kings 7, 3 through 11 to set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. 2 Kings 7, 3 through 11, it should be up on the, the screen for you. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Aramaeans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Aramaeans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. 
For the Lord had caused the Aramaeans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'll teach us this morning, that you'll inspire us. Uh, Father, help me get out of the way and let your spirit just work in the lives of of me and and everyone here. Shape us and mold us. Inspire us to be the kind of people, the kind of church that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Samaria was in big trouble. If you read chapter 6 later on this afternoon, you'll learn that the entire Aramean army had pushed up close to their city gates. They'd cut off all food and supply lines and plunged the land into a severe famine. It says the townspeople were so hungry that they were shelling out incredible amounts of money to eat things like donkey heads and dove's dung. Yes, dove's dung. It's really not bad on a Ritz cracker, but but everything tastes better on a Ritz. So beyond that, 2 Kings 6.29 documents that mothers were even bargaining with each other to eat each other's children. Outright acts of cannibalism were taking place. So looking at our passage, here's the reality, number one. The enemy is attacking, there's a famine in the land, and people are dying. It is a brutal scene. But in a spiritual sense, it's not really that much different than what we encounter every day here in the Rocky Mountain West. The attack of our spiritual enemy is obvious, isn't it? The decay of our moral fabric, the racial unrest, the school shootings, the devaluing of life. The shadow of the enemy is everywhere. Jan and I saw a heart-wrenching example of this up close just a couple months ago. Kay is one of our friends. She lives in South Dakota. Her husband, Larry, was my counterpart for Converge Heartland. He took care of the churches in North Dakota and South Dakota. Two of the sweetest people that you'd ever meet in your life. Well, on Thanksgiving Day, Larry didn't wake up. 68 years old, perfect health, and God took him home didn't make sense, but as Kay wrestled with with why this happened, her world got even darker. New Year's Day, her grown son, Jesse, uh, came knocking at her door. Jesse has had uh, drug addiction problems his whole life. He was a meth addict. For decades, Larry and Kay have prayed that Jesse would be open to accepting Christ as his Savior, but he always rejected it. So that morning, Kay let him in, and and he just kind of collapsed in her arms, and he just sobbed about the death of his dad. And they talked together about moving forward and the importance of faith. But during that discussion, Jesse's demeanor changed. All of a sudden, he started screaming, demons, demons are real. And he came at Kay and he started to hit her. And and, and it went on for an hour. Kay cried out, Jesus, help me. Jesse, don't do this. I'm your mom. But he didn't stop. 
He beat her to an inch of her life. If I showed you the pictures of her beaten face, you would, you'd be sick to your stomach. The police finally showed up and charged Jesse with attempted murder of his mom. Kay ended up in intensive care. Jesse died that night in jail. So dark, so, so evil. And if this was an isolated incident, it would be bad enough. But there's stories like this on the news every day. The enemy has attacked and there is a famine in the land. People are hungry. Certainly they're physically hungry. Over 90 million meals were served to underfed Coloradans last year. But I guess this morning, I want us to consider the number of people close to us that are, that are uh, starving to death spiritually. For so many, sin has cut off their divine supply line, separating them from their heavenly father and, and the kind of fulfilled life they could be experiencing in him. And the result is an epidemic of soul-starved people desperately looking for that thing that will fill their emptiness. And they're often turning to the world's destructive, deceptive trash can options, trying to make sense of life, trying to self-medicate somehow, trying to resolve their emotional hunger, but always coming up empty. I, I talked with a doctor, and she said, for most of my life, I've lived with a big hole inside. I tried to fill it with everything imaginable. I went to church. I went to catechism. I, I did all of my religious duties, but, but I, I still felt empty. So I said, maybe a career. So I became a doctor. I enjoyed a successful practice. I, I had a great family, a loving husband, three wonderful children. I thought that would fill the hole, but it didn't. I found myself in a beautiful home with a beautiful car and a beautiful family and a great career, everything that people say will bring fulfillment in life. And yet when I looked inside, I was still so, so empty. And maybe you know people like that. People that jump from fad to fad, whatever's the latest thing, it's yoga or it's yoga with goats or it's whatever, you know, I gotta try this thing now. They jump from job to job, partner to partner, drug to drug desperately searching, but never finding what they're looking for. They might as well be chewing on a donkey head or dove's dung. I mean, maybe you've experienced that kind of emptiness yourself. You have what you thought would bring you fulfillment, but it, it doesn't. And statistics are starting to reveal the negative impact of this spiritual famine in our land. Studies show that we've never been more connected through social media, but also never more lonely as a society. Our Converge Rocky Mountain pastors have seen a surge in the tragic suicides that they're brought in to help with. Utah has the highest teen suicide rate in the country. A recent news report noted a steep and sustained spike in sexually transmitted diseases, looking for love in all the wrong places. 70,000 people died of opioid overdoses last year in our country. And right now, almost 9 out of 10 Rocky Mountain residents are headed for a Christless eternity in hell. Our unchurched rate is 87%, 98 to 99% over in Utah. It is plain to see the shadow of the enemy has permeated the Rocky Mountain West. The enemy has attacked. There's a famine in our land. People are dying. It's dark. It might look hopeless. But don't throw in the towel just yet. Aren't you glad you came this morning? I mean, just a bummer of a message. You know, I'm telling Pastor John, never bring him back again. Anyway, we've got to move on because, because reality number two is this. Relief is closer than you think. 
relief is closer than you think. In 2 Kings chapter 7, the writer kind of zooms in on these four hungry lepers that are begging outside their city gates. Knowing that there's no food for them in Samaria, they decide, let's go over to the Aramean war camp. There's food over there. It was certainly a risky move, but they figured, we don't have anything to lose. If we stay here, we die. If we go over there and they kill us, we die. It's kind of a push. So, you know, off they went, hoping for the best. And that's exactly what they found. The dusty group arrives at the camp at at dusk. They take a look around. They they rub their eyes again. They, they, They can't believe what they're seeing. I mean, oh, they saw animals and tents and and treasures and food. But what they didn't see were soldiers. No people at all. In chapter 7, verse 6, we learn that God played a little trick on the Aramean army. He made it sound like thousands of chariots were attacking them. And when they heard this imaginary threat, the Arameans panicked. They pulled up their skirts and they just ran away. I mean, you know, real manly men they were. But they, they just took off and they left everything behind a vast supply of hidden treasure for these lepers to stumble in on. And what a a scene that must have been as they come into the camp and it's just deserted and they go into the tents and there's tables that are filled with with turkey and roast beef. And I mean, can you believe it? And peanut M&Ms, unbelievable. And and there's caramel rolls over here. Is that fried chicken back there? I mean, I'm taking a little liberty there. I'm not sure what they had there, but... But we know that it was good eating because it says they went from tent to tent, eating and drinking and hoarding all kinds of stuff. They were near death, and now they're fully alive. They're hungry, now they're filled, they're searching, but now they're satisfied. Uh, An amazing, an incredible discovery made steps away from where they'd been suffering before. An amazing, life-saving, life-changing turn of events for those lepers. And you see... The great news is, this is the same kind of life-saving, life-changing experience that happens every time a soul-starved person discovers the treasure of Jesus Christ and embraces him as their rescuer, their savior, their, their Lord of their life. Isn't this what happened to you if you were a Jesus follower? You were lost. You were hungry. You were headed for hell because of the sin in your life. But then through a friend or or a church or some other miraculous God connection, your eyes were open to the treasure now that you can have in Jesus. And everything changed. Paul describes this incredible new life turnaround in Ephesians 2, where he writes, As for you, believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now at work in those who are disobedient, when you followed Satan, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. Paul says when we were dumpster diving, we were in big trouble. Because of our lying and cheating and impure thoughts and other assorted acts of rebellion, we were, because of our sin, we had a death penalty hanging on our heads. But Ephesians 2.4 goes on to, to present the life-saving treasure. Paul says, but because of his great love for us. Let that sink in. Because of his great reckless love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace, God's unmerited favor, that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, believers, we're walking billboards promoting the amazing grace of our loving God. Wherever we go, this is what God can do in your life. For it is by the free gift of grace, says Paul, that you have been saved through faith, through belief. This is not from yourselves. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. It is the gift of God that he gave to you and he gave to me. Just like those lepers, when we take our step of faith, when we enter into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we too will stumble in on a soul-satisfying feast of God's goodness. We're adopted as his kids, as his people. We're guaranteed of being in heaven forever. You never have to doubt that again. But it's so much more than fire insurance. With Jesus, we find peace and power and direction for life right now. We find wisdom and joy and the ability to stand strong in tough times because we know our God is standing with us. And with Jesus, that hole in our soul is finally filled because God is that something that we've all been looking for. We have been created, hardwired to live best in a life-giving relationship with him. That doctor I told you about, she finished her story this way. After years of religion and striving and accumulating, I finally discovered a real relationship with God, and that's when everything changed. My God-shaped vacuum was filled. And now she just glows as she talks about her relationship with Jesus. She found the feast. I hope you have too, because when we get connected in a love relationship, heart-to-heart with God, and stay connected... The party never has to end. That's good news, isn't it? (laughs) Wake up the person next to you. That's good news, isn't it? Yes. I want you to know, if you feel like you're starving to death this morning, if you feel like there's a gaping hole in your soul, relief is closer than you think. You can find what you're looking for in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've gone your own way, if you've messed up your life, if you've sinned against God and you think there's no hope for me, God has no use for me, there is hope. Because God loved you so much, he sent his only son to die on the cross to pay the death penalty we were supposed to pay. Jesus took our sin-stained lives and he gives us new life, a new life that's forgiven and hope-filled and washed whiter than snow. He gives us a fresh start in Christ you can have everything that you've been looking for. And it's all made possible simply by agreeing with God that you have rebelled against him, believing that Jesus died for your sin, and embracing him as your Lord and Savior. Relief is closer than you think. That's good news. Let's get back to 2 Kings. As the story rolls on, we run into a third reality, and that is this. Sharing is not optional. Going is not optional. When we left the guys, they were stuffing themselves. They had let their belts out as far as they could, but there was still so much more to consume and eat and everything. And so they put their heads together. What should they do? Well, they all agreed that that stockpiling the stuff was really the best option. If they hid all this stuff away and kept it for themselves, well, they'd be set for a long, long time. And so they started going through and collecting up stuff and gold and silver, and they'd hide it away, and they'd go to another tent and collect it up and hide it away. And right when things look great, tragedy strikes again. They get an attack of good conscience. 
Verse 9 says, they said to each other, you know, it's not really right that we keep all this food and treasure and good news to ourselves when people are dying back in Samaria. It's not really right that we keep this good news to ourselves while people are dying. Besides, if somebody ever finds out, we could be in big trouble. So let's go back and let's just tell the king about what we've discovered. Let's reconnect with our friends and our neighbors and tell them about this incredible banquet that's available to them. So they headed back and they spread the good news. And as a result, it wasn't long before all of Samaria was stuffed with delicious food and celebrating their newfound riches. The city was saved and the donkeys were breathing a lot easier. The lepers literally held the hope of Samaria in their hands, didn't they? And because they chose sharing over stockpiling, the whole city moved from famine to feast, despair to joy, death to life. And you know where I'm going with this. As God's people, we hold the hope of the world in our hands. We hold the hope of the Rocky Mountain West in our hands. We hold the hope of of Lakewood and the Denver metro area in our hands. We have found what so many people are still searching for. And we have a critical decision that we need to make. Are we going to take this good news and stockpile God's goodness and keep it to ourselves? Or are we going to share this this life-giving message with others? For the Apostle Paul, there was really no question. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he declares, For Christ's love compels us. In light of all that Jesus has done for me, I can't stay silent. I must share the good news. In verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5, he goes on, And church, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that God and humanity can be in relationship again. Paul goes on in verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are God's spokespeople on this earth. Jesus commands us in Matthew 28 to go into the world and make disciples. The Greek here is literally, as you are going. Jesus assumed his people would go into the world. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it, that God believes in his church so much. He has so much faith in you and me and every other spirit-empowered believer that he has entrusted us with the significant mission of bringing his good news to the lost and hungry world that we live in. We're his representatives. He's equipped us and empowered us and called us to go and make more disciples. And I'm so glad to report to you that as a movement of churches, Converge Rocky Mountain has chosen to go. Many of our churches have been compelled to bring the kingdom of heaven into their communities, feeding the hungry, befriending the lonely, helping the lost find their way back home, going and visiting prisoners, taking care of widows and and orphans. This year, Mission Hills Church and and one of our new plants, Catalyst Church, down in Canyon City, they teamed up and they helped 1,200 families find hope for the holidays through a toy and, and, and food drive. And then they were able to talk to them about the real meaning of Christmas. Last Thanksgiving, Cheyenne Hills did a, a, a Thanksgiving giveaway where they gave away 500 meals, uh, a box of food and a coupon for a turkey so that needy families can take the, the food home and eat as a family in their own house. They didn't want them sitting in a big cafeteria somewhere, so impersonal. They said, we want to celebrate as a family and give thanks to God that way. Uh, The Rock Community Church, not too far from here, they canceled services on a Sunday and sent 600 people out. They called it Love Where You Live. 
They just went out into the neighborhood to pray for people. They painted walls in a, in a, in a school. They packed 2,000 meals for hungry families. Our churches are loving people and loving people and loving people until people go, why are you doing this? And then they're able to tell them about the great news of life with Jesus. And because they're reaching out, all these churches are alive and on mission and filled with joy. That's what happens when someone finds the feast. That's the power of go. When we go into the world, it energizes us to be the kind of transformational churches that God has, has created us to be. Knowing that we hold the hope of the world in our hands, seven brave Converge Rocky Mountain leaders, people just like you, went over to the island of Mindanao. It's a, it's a Muslim island. It's under martial law. A third of the island has ISIS troops kind of contained there. But our team still went, even though we knew the dangers. We went behind enemy lines because there's 10 tribes that have never heard about Jesus. And every day, maybe for the first time in my life, I heard people pray, Lord, if I give my life today for the gospel, there's no better reason to die. And it was serious. Every day they were putting their lives on the line. We all were. We had to go, though, because they needed to hear the news. That's why our guys are planting in Utah, literally an unreached people group in our own country. That's why Converge Rocky Mountain is seeking to add 100 more congregations. Just imagine 100 more beacons of truth and light to lead people home. And we need this church to be a, a partner with us in that great God-sized church planting effort. You have an insert in your program if you want to partner with us as a prayer warrior, as a financial partner. But we need all hands on deck to really make sure we are redeeming the, the Rocky Mountain West. As a movement, we have chosen to go into the world and to make disciples. But what about grace? I love to see what you're doing with the block party and the VBS. I love to see the, the homes you're, you're praying for. As a church, you are moving in this direction. What about you individually? What about you individually? Are you also saying, yes, I see it as my responsibility to be a representative for the kingdom. What will you do with that hope? Will you stockpile it or will you share it? Will you stay or will you go? And I know the topic of evangelism is very intimidating. And right now, most of you are saying, you know, that's just not my thing. It's not my gift. You know, when you talk about evangelism, I break into a cold sweat and I sometimes get hives and now I can't feel my feet and I think I'm having a heart attack. So Paul just stopped talking about it because evangelism is just not where I'm going to go. Now, I understand that. But if you never go, can I tell you, you're going to miss out on some of the greatest joy uh, of being a believer on this earth. If you have ever led someone to faith in Christ, you walk away going, why don't I do this every day? Why don't I do this every moment? To know someone was dead forever and now they're alive with Christ and God used your life. It's powerful. Paul says in Philemon verse 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your faith will come alive as you tell others about what you've discovered in Jesus. So let me just give you a couple little steps you can take to be a more effective witness, a more effective missionary for God's kingdom. First of all, stay full. Stay full. If you found the feast, stay full. I mean, it's hard to invite someone to an abundant, amazing life if you're not living that life yourself, right? 
So many times we, we call people to, here, this is a great abundant life, but we're not living it ourselves, and, and that's, that doesn't work. So if you want to be a superb witness for the kingdom, first cultivate a living, growing, on-fire faith yourself. Take advantage of the discipleship and growth opportunities that, that you have right here at Grace Fellowship. I mean, uh, you fill yourself up with Jesus, and I guarantee you'll have something to give to others. In fact, the more you grow into the likeness of Christ, the more his, start, his heart starts to beat in unison with yours, the more Jesus' priorities become your priorities, the more naturally you'll start to share your faith with others. You see, the, the mark of a mature disciple is not that they've read through the Bible a million times. It's not that they have perfect attendance at church. The mark of a mature disciple is that they're involved in making more disciples. So stay full. Second, stay close. Stay close. The only way the beggars could get the good news back to the starving Samaritans was to actually go back to that city under siege. They got close. And isn't that what Jesus did? He got close to the people that needed him the most. I love John 1.14 in the message version. It says the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus left all of glory and relocated. He moved into our neighborhood. He started rubbing shoulders with tax collectors and prostitutes and women with multiple husbands and lepers. He got close to everybody that needed him. He got close to you. He, he got close to me. And now he calls his followers to do the same in sharing the gospel. You see, it's very hard to pass out our faith from a distance. From a distance, it's easy to ignore those figures. Nine out of ten people are unchurched and headed for hell. Nine out of ten. That's too bad. It's easy to see the lost as somebody else's problem from a distance. But as we get closer, as we, as we start to build real relationships with hungry souls, as projects become people with real challenges and a real need for the Savior, there's something inside every believer that rises up to say they're starving to death. Someone has to tell them the good news. So what neighborhoods can you move into? What searching folks do you need to get close to? I'd encourage you to start praying for four or five people that need Jesus. And I bet as soon as I say that, God is bringing some people to mind. Maybe a neighbor or a co-worker, a, a family member, someone that works at the school where your kids go to school. Look for ways that you can love on these people and then ask God to open up opportunities that you can have spiritual conversations with these people. Which leads us to the third step in, in effective, being a, an effective missionary. Stay clear. Stay clear. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. When someone says, I've noticed there's something different about you. You handle life differently. What is that? Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. Some of you probably can talk about Jesus off the top of your head. It comes very naturally, but for most of us, it doesn't. So I'd encourage you to take a little time to get comfortable talking about spiritual things. First, maybe think through your own faith story. Think through what, what difference has Jesus made in my life, in my marriage, in my singleness, in, in my, and how I approach work, in how I approach the challenges of life. Just take some time and write out a clear, concise, honest account of what Jesus means to you and practice it so you'll be ready to share it when somebody asks you about your faith. 
You may also want to practice a couple of, of simple evangelism tools like, like the bridge or the Roman road. Uh, there are uh, the simple biblical presentations that, that give scripture to show people their need for a savior and how they can make that happen. I'm not sure, you might have gotten a QR code on your, on your message insert. So if you snap that, if you use them anymore, um, that'll take you right to the page or there should be some instructions in there. On the ConvergeRockyMountain.org website, we have a whole section just uh, on gospel presentations to help and coach you. So, so I would go there. So stay full, stay close, stay clear. And finally, stay faithful as a missionary. Don't ever give up on your efforts to help people meet, know, and follow Christ. No matter how messed up or dark or hostile a person might get, keep praying and keep trusting God to open their hearts to receive the gospel. I told you that Jesse was arrested for attempted murder. I also told you he died in his jail cell. It wasn't suicide. He died of natural causes. What I didn't tell you was that earlier that night, a chaplain went in and visited with Jesse. He shared the good news. And a sober Jesse said, I want Jesus in my life. I need Jesus in my life. And in his jail cell, Jesse made a credible profession of faith. And as far as we can know, he is in heaven right now. His parents prayed for decades. When most people wanted to punch Jesse, a chaplain moved in close and loved on him. And because they never gave up, God used their lives to reach a battered, mixed-up meth addict and guide him home to his heavenly father. His mom, Kay, said, It's like a weight is lifted that I've carried for 30 years. I always worried about my son. Where's Jesse? Is he in trouble? I thought when Larry died, Oh, oh Lord, how am I going to go on without my love and my partner? Now it makes sense. I'm glad that Larry is there for Jesse. Jesse needs him more than I do right now. And I can only imagine that moment when Dad Larry saw his prodigal son Jesse coming into heaven. And they met, and there they stand side by side in the presence of their almighty God. Because people didn't give up on Jesse. Circling up and stockpiling your faith is one option, but it's not a good one. If you want your faith and your church to soar to new heights, embrace the reality that God has chosen you to be his best representative here on this earth. Unleash the power of go in your life and in your church. Commit yourself to go across the street or around the world. Share the good news with others and lead people to life in Christ. It just wouldn't be good to keep the good news to ourselves when people are dying. Let's pray. Maybe as I've been talking this morning, you know I, I still have a hole in my, my soul. I, I'm still hungry. I haven't put my faith in Christ. I haven't found the feast yet. And you can this morning, simply, simply by acknowledging that you're a sinner. God, I have rebelled against you. I've lived my life on my own terms, but I want that to change. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I welcome you into my life as, as my Lord and my Savior. If you pray a simple prayer like that and you mean it, you can have that new life in Christ today, right now. And I'd encourage you to do that. And for others of us, you may be a believer, you may have found the feast, but it's been a long time since you've really dived deep into your relationship with God and you're hungry. Your Heavenly Father is waiting to welcome you back 
into his arms. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door, I'll come in, and we'll have sweet fellowship together. And he said that to Christians. Maybe this morning is that time to open the door and, and say, Lord, I want a richer relationship with you. I commit myself to, to, to following you again. And as a church, Lord, I just pray that you'll empower Grace Fellowship to have that same kind of a passion, that, uh, to be compelled to share the good news to their neighbors. The people around here, uh, I know that there's cults that, don't, that meet very close to here. People desperately need to hear the truth, the good news of Christ. And so I pray for this church, Lord, that you'll just bless them with a power that they've never seen before, that they'll see life after life after life come to know Jesus as Savior. As they pray for these homes, as they reach the kids through BBS, as they have this block party and open their eyes to the needs of the people that are here for that block party, Lord, just help them to be very effective in sharing your good news. Thank you, Lord, that you believe in us so much that you've given us this great responsibility on the earth. We love you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, enter a time of communion. If you're a guest with us, there's a communion table set up in the front, and there's also one in the back. As Christians, we believe that, that, that God sent his only son to, to die on that cross, to, to have his body broken, to have his blood shed. And we, we take this time as a, a representation of that through the, the body being the bread and the, and the blood being the wine. So now as we enter communion, just we'll, we'll go ahead and take it and bring it back to your seats and take it on your own. But take a moment to to think about that, to, to process what that, I mean, we've probably done it multiple times in churches throughout our lives, but this morning as we enter that time of communion, just take a moment to focus on what that what that means to you. And out of all the people in this entire world and all the people out of the entire community of Lakewood, that God did that just just for you, just, just for you, for that one person. You may come.